Hello, once again, welcome back to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jax Neflin. I'd like to thank you for joining us this week, but before we get into our episode proper, we should probably mention the reality of the world that we live in. There's a lot of that. Just There's a lot of reality happening right now. This is our first episode recording since the protests started being like a thing at the scale that they are right now. We aren't necessarily equipped to address it, but also this episode deals with some parallel issues. We have links in the description of places you can donate if you want to help people who are in need in different ways. Mm-hmm. This week we are going to be talking about... 2018's Hotel Transylvania 3 Summer Vacation, as well as Captain Phillips from 2013. Uh, and I've been reliably informed that you don't need context for Hotel Transylvania 1 or 2. I found that be- to be broadly the case, but if you feel that they help augment the trilogy's vision, let me know. Yeah, like that's the thing about children's movies is they may be sequels, but they're mostly standalone because they want to draw in new small children who may have not even been born during the previous releases. Are there any kids' films that really require continuity to understand? Off the top of my head, I cannot think of any. Land Before Time for The Mysterious Island. Yes, because you have to remember Chomper. Yes. There's that deep cut. Anyway, let's talk about a completely different children's franchise. Hotel Transylvania. For those with absolutely no context, congratulations, Dracula has a hotel where all the monsters live because it's safe for them there from persecution or whatever. The summary for this movie in particular... Dracula is tired from his constant job of running the hotel for monsters, so his daughter Mavis arranges for Drac and family and their friends to go on a cruise. In a short reluctance, Dracula starts to get into it when he meets Captain Erica, who is driving the boat, and zings. Secretly, Erica is the daughter of Dracula's arch-nemesis, Van Helsing, who lurks in the ship plotting to destroy all monsters with a magic object that was lost in Atlantis. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That's a really silly sentence. Erica uses Dracula's crush on her to get close and kill him, but only succeeds in, in catching feelings herself. When the ship arrives in Atlantis, Drac and Erica make a great team to recover the artifact, which Van Helsing uses to mind control the Kraken. As it begins to destroy Atlantis with everyone in it, Johnny, Drac's son-in-law, counters it with his chill beats that your dad will recognize, and they are able to defeat Van Helsing. Drac proposes to Erica, and she agrees. Other minor subplots are happening, but none of them are important for the plot, so. Yes. Yeah. This is the third film in the franchise. It's the first Adam Sandler movie that has gotten onto the bracket. It's slipped through. <laughs> it's uh, managed to avoid the skill and cribdis of being bad and me not wanting it there. We, we mentioned in the outro of the last episode, this is like like very at odds for you because you love Dracula, but hate Adam Sandler. <laughs> I, it's, it's true. It's true. And I'll admit, I don't hate this as much as I expected to. Mm-hmm. At a certain point, I gave up on being like, this is not canon to the original book. <laughs> and as with most of the franchises maintains that really interesting animation style that's very evocative of classic cartoons like Looney Tunes or mm-hmm. Popeye. Yeah. This is a, a Gunny Tarakovsky flick, if um, you didn't know that already. Mm. And Gunny Tarakovsky is known for his love of old animation, um, and he references it heavily in his other works, like Dexter's Laboratory, Samurai Jack. His Popeye film might also be greenlit again, so we'll see if that happens. Man, that'd be fun. And I'll admit, I don't hate this world. It's kind of a fun space to exist in. The monsters are generally enjoyable enough to hang out with. I think that broadly, the monstrousness of them is often underused. Like, the werewolf couple is just a couple of too many kids. The mummy is just a laid-back guy. I feel like there is opportunity to do more with their beings, as it were. But, mm-hmm. yeah. We don't have the conflict of the moon making you do evil things that werewolves usually get. Or um, the mummy having, I don't know... Curse magic or something. Yeah. Bringing the ten plagues of Egypt. 
Also, like, personality-wise, it makes much more sense for the mummy to be wound to tight. Yeah. Which, I know that was, like, a thing in the first movie, and he's, like, chilled out now. I don't recall that. Most of the characters outside of the Draculas do not get any character growth. Mm. Which is unfortunate, but also kids film. Mm-hmm. But I do appreciate that they have this, what seems like a very genuine friendship. Everybody who isn't part of the Draculas are just trying to, like, get Dracula girlfriend because he's clearly lonely. It's, it's sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, you can definitely tell that, like, care for their friend. Mm-hmm. I will admit that because they're going all of Universal Monsters, a lot of them are male and they have like a female counterpart that definitely feels more like a female counterpart than a character in her own right in some mm-hmm. cases. It's mm-hmm. a little unfortunate, but also so many of the like original Universal Monsters were male that I get why that's a thing. Yeah, but you do have Mavis there and Mavis doesn't really have friends of her own. She just hangs out with her dad's friends or her dad's friends' wives and or girlfriends. And her husband and kids. Yeah. Yeah. But having a younger set of female monsters would have been much more interesting. We get a little bit of that at the very beginning where she's helping one of the guests of the hotel get married. Mm-hmm. But that character doesn't really get to be much of a character. They're just sort of a a spiky thing that causes a few gags. Yeah. 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 Maybe it's need some ghoul friends here to help. Which, I think there's an opportunity to explore something kind of fun with that. Like, what, what the next generation of monsters looks like. I can't remember what, what it's called. There's some movie where Dracula the Wolfman and Frankenstein's monster are aged out in favor of, like, slasher monsters and an alien. And they kind of have to grapple with, you know, being obsolete. I think it could be a really interesting thing to explore with your kid growing up leaving the nest as, like, I don't know, Hotel Transylvania 4. I thought you were going to go in a bunch of different direction and go, like, uh, a la Scooby-Doo in the Ghoul School. Okay, again, I haven't seen Ghoul School. Ah, fair enough. <laughs> At some point I should, but also we should probably focus on this movie. Yes. So, one thing this movie introduces that I love is a gremlin air. Monsters go to airlines run by gremlins. It's very funny. Mm-hmm. And it is ramshackle and falling apart and... The gremlins are all very hostile to all of the people on board. It is exactly what I would expect, and it just it's played out perfectly. It stays just long enough to make the necessary number of jokes and then ends, which is exactly what you want to do with a comedy bit. Mm-hmm. In general, the comedy in this film knows when to get in and get out. They don't overuse a gag. There's a good bit where Dracula's just having a dance party while Eric is trying to kill him with various bits of boat that is... Exactly as long as that scene needs to be and then ends. We don't, it doesn't drag itself out. Mm-hmm. It doesn't drag itself out. That's all this half of the episode is going to be. Is it? Sure is. Because they're on this monster cruise, there's a lot of variety of monsters. And so we get a lot of these one-off cutaway gags with like an individual monster for like one joke. And then they're gone. And it, it works out incredibly well. It, th- this film has a very Mel Brooksian approach to comedy where it's just like, throw out as many jokes as you can and there's not enough time in between them for the audience to realize something didn't work and they will be laughing at the next one. Mm-hmm. There's a, a bit that I loved where a chupacabra goes up to the bar, orders as usual, and is given just a whole goat alive in a martini glass and walks away with it. And... <laughs> And that's it. And the adults in the audience get what's happening, but the kids are going to be like, haha, a goat. It's a great way to do comedy for a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. There are definitely some uh, adult-oriented jokes as well. Like, when Drek is getting advice on how to actually talk to Erica and not just, like, babble incoherently, Frank, the, the Frankenstein character, is like, Ask her where her parts are from. <laughs> and both of us just needed a minute. <laughs> 
after that. And then immediately after Erica shows up and Drac just kind of takes all of the advice from his friends and puts it in a blender and spews it back out. And he says the line, Then would you like to see my parts? <laughs> Boy, howdy, that was uh, a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that was the most, like, a blatant example of, that one's for the adults. <laughs> <laughs> Something for the dads. Yeah. Um, and that was a good use of a Frankenstein being made of multiple people. Like, I, I always love a, a good Frankenstein's monster gag like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's even one earlier where they're at the wedding at the hotel and Frank is trying to set, set him up with another Promethean. I think we've established on the podcast that that's what we're using for Frankenstein-esque monsters. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Well, she's my right arm's cousin. And she's this typical, like, cartoon bombshell of a character. And then she turns to the see the other side. We see this huge hulking arm. Oh, ah, I see it now. <laughs> Which is wild in so many ways. I have so many questions about the world building. How does relationships work in relation to assembled people? What are those family trees like? A lot of incest. I'd actually be really fascinated to see something that has the same kind of Game of Thrones in approach where you have to like keep track of all the different family ancestries, but also people can be assembled and reassembled at will. <laughs> that sounds so much fun. I will admit a lot of the world building in this kind of gets weird to me. This is always my problem with kids' movies that are also fantasies, is that I, I start to ask questions like mm-hmm. there are supposed to be like an, an oppressed minority, but also there seems to be a lot of them they seem to be able to like have property and be fine. I, I don't know. It's, a lot of it doesn't really hold up in terms of how monsters and humans relate to each other. Uh, so in the second film, the masquerade's broken. Sure. That may alleviate some of your questions and concerns, but no, you're you're spot on. That The film doesn't really deal with that, but it's because it's a children's movie and that's not interesting to children. Yeah, I'll, that's fair. I'll allow that. Well, I shouldn't say that. It's not interesting to most children. <laughs> Adults assume that kids will be interested in or follow that. Mm-hmm. And with the world building, I think that I thought was really interesting that I would want to see done better in a narrative that can really explore that is Atlantis as a city of monsters. What a cool concept. I'm really into that. Let's dig into that at some point. I really liked them theming Atlantis like Atlantic City. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> Just like this huge casino, all you can eat buffets, there's a like a rave that the monsters go to where the final battle happens. Everything is neon. Mm-hmm. That was fun. I'm kind of sad that we didn't get more, like, Grecian monsters there. So, like, if we had um, a chimera and some some harpies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, most of the gambling tables are staffed by these, like, emo, like, fish mermen things. In contrast to the fishmen who run the boat, who are, like, reverse mermaids, so they have a fish head and then people legs. Mm Mm-hmm. Of which there are many, so I guess there's just a thriving under-the-sea civilization down there. I'm also wondering, like, how Van Helsing convinced them to do this? What, like, are they in on the ruse or not? Many questions <laughs> that are never really explored. Yeah. Van Helsing is maybe not great. Well, parts of this movie don't really work. I think that Van Helsing is kind of has some not-greatness to him. So, in general... This series has kind of this through line of old people are gross and ugly. Mm-hmm. Um, we see it with Dracula's dad, Vlad. We see that with Van Helsing here. There's also a trio of witches who are pining after Vlad mm-hmm. that has some, some of the similar stuff going on. And it's just not great. I think a lot of it is pulling from some of the comedy stylings of the older cartoons that this is meant to emulate, but mm-hmm. it's... It's pulling some things that are best left behind. 
Mm-hmm. And then with that, Van Helsing is still alive after a hundred years because he's kept himself alive by giving us robot parts. He's basically, I'm sorry, more machine now than man, twisted and evil. <laughs> and there's definitely an element of like transhumanism bad, body augmentation bad, uh, adaptive technology bad, mm-hmm. uh, which I don't love. And I think that there was an opportunity to explore how the things he's done to keep himself alive have made him also monstrous in the ways that these monsters are. There could have been a, a fun narrative there, but they don't really go there. Mm-hmm. Also, while he's playing his evil doom song that drives the Kraken into destruction, none of these monsters are like, hey, we could use our various magical powers to just kill him. They're just like, oh no, this is bad. We're just going to stand down here. Some of us can fly. Why? The fact that they solve the problem by just playing chill beats and not by direct action against their oppressor bothered me for reasons that are related to the outside world and there's a reason that half of my notes are just the words liberal conflict resolution in big text Mm -hmm. i will say there is at least this one interesting through line of dracula as this superhero analog oh yeah and we were discussing it afterwards and i'm surprised no one has at least to my knowledge, is taking a more literal approach to that, where, like, Dracula, he's got the billowing cape, he can fly, you know, super strength, all those fun little weird powers. Why have we not seen, like, Dracula a la superhero? Mm-hmm. Question, is that what Mobius is kind of supposed to be? I don't know. Morbius the living vampire? Sure. Not really. He's more of a anti-hero, anti-villain sort mm. of archetype. He is a... Someone who is experimenting with vampire bats and super science goes wrong and then he is uh, cursed to, you know, be ugly but have cool superpowers. <laughs> that That's an unfortunate trade-off, I guess. <laughs> because of how many powers vampires often have, it makes sense for them to kind of be the heroes of these things. And I think you're right, we could, could go further with that. And that kind of works here. Dracula does a lot of, like, cool flight and teleportation stuff. But he mm-hmm. does teleportation, maybe just, I don't know, mind control, whatever. Yeah. And, he can move quickly. Yeah. But I'm kind of sad that at the end, it's him and Johnny, who's kind of been just in the background for a lot of the movie, not really doing much, solving the problem instead of like him and Mavis, or their whole family working together in some way. Mm-hmm. Mavis is kind of there, but I feel like we could have done more of a like family bonding by defeating mm-hmm. the monster kind of thing. I mean, honestly, I do appreciate for the most part that Johnny is on the sidelines for most of this movie, because it's not really about him. It's about Dracula... And his new love and Mavis kind of dealing with that and feeling a little hurt by it and like, well, what about mom sort of thing? Mm-hmm. Like, those are all interesting themes for a children's movie to explore. Plenty of kids have single parents who are entering into new romantic uh, situations. And it's the whole like stepmom arc from various children's cartoons. Like, this is a well-explored thing, but it should definitely be well-explored because you want children to constantly have something to look at for how to deal with this relatively common situation. It's also important for there to be a lot of different variations so that kids can know that they're allowed to feel many different ways about this and feel different ways at different points in time. Yeah. Also, also adults, you know, if, if you're dealing with that and you're like 27 or whatever. Mm. Yeah, I'm like, I definitely also like Johnny being more of a background character, kind of in the way that all of the other monsters' love interests are. That works. And it wouldn't bother me if he wasn't so integral to solving the problem at the end. Yes. I will definitely grant you that. Like, I think the whole, like, dance battle to, to solve the problem is... It's a children's movie, and sure, that's a silly, fun way to resolve it, but it just doesn't feel thematically appropriate. Right. 
Uh, it, it felt mostly like, here, what songs are we going to be able to license and use to promote this film later? Mm-hmm. Again, songs dads will recognize. Yeah. It's also truly wild that the comeuppance for Van Helsing is he gives them a full refund on their cruise. Like, that's it. Yeah. He, he tried to murder everybody with a kraken. Mm-hmm. What the hell? I mean, I don't know what the appropriate response would be that would also be kid-friendly. It would be weird for the school to turn on him and eat him. That would be incredibly terrifying, especially if that was the only scary thing in that movie. But mm-hmm. <laughs> the bottom half of my notes are, liberal conflict resolution, stop redeeming those who would oppress you and fucking murder him. So, <laughs> it's fine. At the start of the movie, Dracula mentions that you know he can't fall in love again because his wife died and you only zing once in your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, I was like... Hmm, that's a weird message for kids that you can only fall in love once. But I do like that that would up not being true. That's a good thing to get over. That's actually a really cool message for kids. I'm mm-hmm. I'm into the idea that like kids learning you can have multiple love interests, especially since a lot of kids meet it kind of has a very simple like you fall in love and get married with like this one person. And then you get a happily ever after. Mm-hmm. And there's no nothing after that. Mm-hmm. Which honestly, the idea that you can only fall in love once and you're an immortal vampire and you've lost love of your life is horrifying. <laughs> What a wildly sucky curse. That's very Anne Rice-ish. I'm actually kind of into that. Um, in, a, uh, in a thing that's not meant for children. Oh no, in a kid's movie. That sounds great. Okay, Watership Down. <laughs> Listen, I know what I like. It's terrifying children. One of my favorite movies as a kid was Secrets of Nim. And Fair. that's why I'm like this. That does explain a lot. <laughs> yeah, I think that while it's not a strong movie, it's not... I, I felt very neutral by the end of it. I felt like that was a movie that I'd watched. Mm-hmm. Speaking of movies we watched... Let's go ahead and talk about Captain Phillips. Um, before we do, I want to say that while Hotel Transylvania interacts with race and racism in ways, Captain Phillips is very explicitly about real-world acts of state violence against black people that doesn't pull a lot of punch into that department. If that's a thing you don't want to engage with... We do not blame you. Yeah, we don't, especially right now... The end of the episode where we give our final judgment is in the description. It's that timestamp. If you want to jump to the lifeboats, now's the time. Attention all crew. All crew. All men to your stations on deck. Repeat, all men to your deck stations now. Let's do this. Still here? Okay. What happened in Captain Phillips? Based on a true story, Captain Phillips depicts the events of the hijacking of the Maersk Alabama in 2009. The film alternates between following Captain Richard Phillips as he and his crew sail the Maersk Alabama from port of Salah, Oman, to Mombasa, Kenya, and Alawali Muse, a Somali fisherman turned pirate, as he and his crew attempt to board the container ship. The pirate's first attempt is unsuccessful due to half of the boarding party giving up after a bluff from Phillips, and the other half's engine breaking down. Muse and his three crewmates make a second attempt and succeed boarding the ship and briefly taking control of the bridge. The crew of the Maersk Alabama is able to hide and ambush Muse in the engine room, and the two crews broker a deal to trade hostage captains and allow the pirates to leave on the lifeboat with the money from the ship's safe, $30,000. However, as Phillips is explaining how to use the lifeboat, he's captured again and the pirates take off in the lifeboat. The USS Bainbridge is then called to negotiate Phillips' release. Tensions rise as the pirates run low on supplies and lose contact with their superiors. The Bainbridge negotiates to attach a tow line to the lifeboat, and eventually convinces Musay to parlay aboard the Bainbridge under false pretenses. With Musay no longer there to control the crew, the situation devolves further. The pirates decide Phillips is more trouble than he's worth and decide to kill him. But before they're able to, marine snipers execute them. Phillips is taken to the Bainbridge for medical care, and Musay is arrested and brought to the U.S. to stand trial. This was very big on the news cycle in 2009. This this was very early in Obama's presidency, and this was kind of 
a lot of people are watching is this kind of make or break moment. Mm-hmm. And Somali piracy is, while it is declining as being a thing that is a worry for a while, it was kind of just like a hot button news thing because it's really easy to point to Africa and say, look at all the all the barbarity over there. Yeah. Also, like piracy is has some buzz about it. Like I think Musa was the first person tried for piracy in like a hundred years. Yep, on U.S. soil. Mm-hmm. And so, like, this was a big event. It makes sense that they would make a movie about it. Unfortunately, a lot of the problems with how things are depicted, it's not difficult to have problems with it, but it is difficult for the movie to change because it is attempting to base this off real life of events. There's kind of this damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of situation is like, we could clean this up to make it less shitty, but then we are denying how real life events happened. Mm -hmm. Which people will probably not be happy about. And and there were some people who were already not happy with how this film portrays the events. There were some on the cruise. Like, Captain Phillips was not that heroic mm-hmm. sort of situation. I think in any situation of depicting real-life events of violence by non-white people onto white people who haven't necessarily personally as themselves done anything to specifically warrant the violence they're experiencing, it's hard to avoid the pitfalls of the scary racial other. Mm-hmm. Um, and this movie's kind of... Not doing a lot to scare that. It's doing some stuff, but not as much as it could be doing. I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's not. The front half of the film very heavily insinuates that the problem here is capitalism. Was that in any of the Somali sub-dialogue? Yeah. Okay, I couldn't read any of that. Full disclosure, I spent most of this movie not looking at it because it was so shaky that I was having motion sickness. <laughs> I believe you, and I will, you know, I'll take back some of what I said, but... There's a lot of this movie that I don't know what happened because I couldn't stare at it because they didn't buy a goddamn tripod. <laughs> I can understand that as a aesthetic choice, and I do not suffer from motion sickness or simulation sickness, mm-hmm. so it was not an issue for me. But I understand that there are lots of people out there who do have that issue. Mm-hmm. And there are some bits I call like There is a bit where, I want to say it's in the lifeboat, they're talking about um, how overfishing by outside forces basically forced Somalia to have to, like, resort to piracy to survive. There's also at the beginning, the pirates are just kind of hanging out. Their superiors come and it's like, what what are you doing? You're just sitting on your ass. It's like, we, we got a boat last week. It's like, I don't fucking care. Go out and get another one. Um, and th- there's definitely this outside pressure for them to perform piracy because like this is around the time of the Somalian civil war. There's warlords about who will kill you. Mm-hmm. So these are people who are trapped between a rock and a hard place and they don't have a whole lot of options. And that's pretty true to life from what I was reading up on it. This became the only viable economy for a lot of people mm-hmm. who needed some way to like not starve. Mm-hmm. I yeah. get it. And even on the other side, Captain Phillips is, during the beginning of the film, is lamenting how hard they are pushing these uh, shipping boats to move quickly and... Companies want things faster and cheaper. 50 guys compete for every job. Everything's different and big wheels are turning. There's no armed guards on this container ship. Mm-hmm. Pirates come, they're like, here, everyone lock yourselves down and turn on these hoses to hopefully sink the skiffs before they're able to board. Mm-hmm. That's it. They're sailing through these waters that are known to have pirate activity and they are given very little resources to help them deal with it. And that sucks, yeah. You know, I'm, I'm coming around to the movie having more to say about the issues than, than I was giving credit for. I see what they are trying to do, but a lot of it is very front-loaded, and they don't 
bring up that stuff later as the film is hitting its climax so I can understand how it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. And on a certain level, you do feel kind of bad for Musa because he's like being hoodwinked by a friend on the Bainbridge and willingly enters the belly of a beast and has no way out. And is just just a kid almost. His age is still kind of... Question mark? Yeah. That, that's honestly one of the big problems I had with the film is we get third act fatigue because they're they're just kind of like ratcheting up this tension on the lifeboat and it's like, oh, is Philip's going to make it out? Da, 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 da. And I would have been much more interested if we got a third act, which was bringing Musée back to stand trial because real life, something very interesting happened because of the lack of record keeping in that area of the world. They did not know what Musée's age was. So they had to do quite a bit of figuring out to determine whether he could be tried as an adult or had to be tried as a minor in the United States. Which is fascinating. I think that the way I would have done that is have the trial be the framing device around which the film is built and have their two different narrations of events led us into this world. Flashbacks for yeah, Phillips like, and Musée. Yeah, retooling this from a military action movie to a more tense legal drama. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think that could have been really fun and would have allowed uh, Musée's case to be made both more clearly and also to really comment on the issues at hand. Mm-hmm. Like, this movie is more tragic than I think a lot of movies about big military real-life things often are, and you could have really leaned into that if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. Everyone talks about Tom Hanks in this. No, uh, Tom Hanks plays Captain Phillips. He is attempting a New England accent. (laughs) (laughs) Is that what that was? Uh, You know, Andrew's a champ. One kid gone, another kid going. How are the boxes? He's from the Missouri part of (laughs) Northern Ireland, I guess. I I could at least tell what he is attempting. (laughs) As the film goes on, it kind of just falls off but like at the very beginning when he's at home talking with his wife it's it's very thick (laughs) yeah and i appreciate that but i think that if you can't do an accent and you're close enough yeah i would rather you not bother like it sounds like a caricature of what people think of people from boston sound like (laughs) yeah and tom hanks is doing this kind of america's dad thing for the whole movie to a kind of comical degree even with the pirates he's being like oh are i'm not sure about that he treats being kidnapped by pirates in the same way that you would treat your teenage son having a rowdy house party and you being where they're gonna break the grill yeah want some of this uh melon it's left over from breakfast it's just gonna go bad it's gonna spoil it's uh usually left out for the first meal of the day maybe we should go ahead help yourself he is constantly attempting to lead the pirates into making good decisions that will defuse the situation. He is trying everything he can to de-escalate the situation. Mm. It's actually kind of nice. <laughs> yeah, it's oddly sweet, atonal in some ways, but it creates a solid character. Mm-hmm. Here, Tom Hanks definitely puts the dad in dad thriller. <laughs> God. And the way he kind of starts to break down over the movie and goes from trying to be the pirate's dad to trying to stab him to save himself and escape the lifeboat is kind of heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Especially because he mentions that some of the things that the container ship is carrying is food relief for Africa. He understands some of the plight that these people are in and he is doing what he can to help. It may not be exactly what they need. It may not be enough, but he... He understands that these people have very limited options, and he doesn't necessarily completely blame them. At least until towards the end, where he realizes that Musée is kind of 
acting out violence to maintain his position within the hierarchy, and he's he is realizing that Musei is doing it not just because he has no other options, but because he feels like a bigger man because of it. You're not just a fisherman. You're not just a fisherman. Which was really heartbreaking when that happened. I'm like, oh, poor Musei. Yeah. And that's a lot of that is more towards the like second half of the film when we're kind of just in this lifeboat for a long time. The mm-hmm. first half I actually really like because we're mm-hmm. getting kind of a home invasion movie, but on a boat, mm-hmm. which is kind of fun and is a good way to do this. Mm-hmm. The playing of cat and mouse, the hiding, the traps, that's yeah. really fun. I was honestly expecting that to go on for way longer. I was expecting that to be a much more significant portion of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'd like it more if it was just that. If it didn't spend so much time being claustrophobic and personal and was just kind of... Yeah, if the end of the second act was like, okay, everything, like we think everything's solved and then they kidnap the captain again in the lifeboat, I think that would have been a better way to work that out. Mm-hmm. They instead ended up, the beginning of the second act is the the captain getting kidnapped in the lifeboat. And so we spend lots of time with with all that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it goes on for so long and there's not lots of new information. And we keep cutting back to like the U.S. military and what they're doing to fix things. And it's, it's not terribly compelling. A lot of the actors portraying military personnel are not super interesting. Yeah, I wound up really not liking the... Captain question mark of the USS Bainbridge. Whoever was giving the whoever gave the kill order at the end. Oh, so that's the um that wasn't the captain of the USS Bainbridge. That was he's with the Navy. That was the Marine guy, and they, like they brought in like a, a special uh, Marine team to for the extraction. Mm-hmm. Like there's the Bainbridge who's attempting to negotiate, and then there is the Marines who are going in stealthily and trying to extract him without having to negotiate. Right. The coldest passion with which that guy gives the kill order on on young men, and yes, the actor is white, made me really frustrated with how this movie was failing. How there's an opportunity to show some real empathy for these kids that the movie didn't take, especially given everything gestures out, out the window. It's one thing to do that because they are about to kill Phillips, but they have been attempting to get clean shots on them for a good chunk of the movie at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just gross. And then it happens and we, we see the aftermath. As the shots go out, the camera is on Phillips, who's been blindfolded. He's about to be executed by them. And then we just see the blood splatter and he has no idea what's going on. And he's just like crying out for help. <gasps> It honestly just broke me. I like I shut down for most of the rest of the movie at that point. Mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, please clean off the blood because of ew, gross. Like the, the it was deeply uncomfortable, and like both literally and also metaphorically. Mm-hmm. They get Captain Phillips back to the boat and get him into like shock treatment therapy and that's kind of where things end yeah we get a fade to black and then a little postscript uh, explanation of like what happened afterwards mm-hmm. like as far as we know the captain Phillips is going to be in shock for the rest of his life that's not fun nope i want to go back to the first portion of the film on the marisk alabama because i think that's the most interesting and enjoyable part of the film and i do have some like I, there's some stuff i want to talk about there sure sure yeah I mentioned it briefly in my summary, but there's a bluff from Captain Phillips during the first attempt for the pirates to board. 
He gets on the radio and broadcasts him reaching out to a U.S. military vessel, but there's no military vessel within range, so he just, like, changes his voice a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> he, he Oliver Queen's his voice a little bit. Yeah. And then just, like, responds back to himself to fake out the pirates because they're listening in on the radio, and it is fantastic. It is deeply funny. 20, we are preparing our weapons now with request as support if possible. Copy. Copy, uh, Alabama. Beware of gunshippers in the air. ETA your position uh, five minutes. That's more of the things that I wanted from this sort of film. Mm-hmm. And the crew standing around is kind of giving him this look of like, you're trying. That was an attempt. I mean, like, they have very little resources. Oh, yeah, I know. Like, like the really interesting thing is the first attempt comes while they were doing a drill for this exact scenario. <laughs> and then the captain's like, uh, no, this is no longer a drill. This is for real. <laughs> yep. There's a, another frustrating part. So Phillips, the first night on the boat before any of the pirate stuff happens, he's, like, reading through work emails and stuff. And that, that's when the film implies to you there's heavy piracy in the water and whatnot. Trying to uh, convey that information via, like, text on a computer screen. And, like, and, like these are walls of text, and they just kind of want you to pick out relevant bits of information, but they don't... Like, it's not even, like, Phillips going in and, like, highlighting it with his cursor so you know, like, this is the important bit of information. It's just... It's so frustrating because it's one of the worst ways to convey information in a film like this. Mm-hmm. I think that... What could have happened is just have some of the characters, especially the minor characters who aren't Captain Phillips, uh, just have a conversation about it. Yeah, in the galley. Yeah. Have one of them be like, ah, those pirates, they're up to no good. Have someone else go, well, we kind of forced them into it. Like, there you go. You can do your themes and also your your exposition right there. Yeah. And we also get to explore some of the other crew members who don't honestly get a lot of time in the movie. Yeah. Which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Really, apart from Captain Phillips and Kind of Musa, there's not really much characterization for anybody. There's um, there's the shouty guy and the kid um, of, on the pirate team. Yeah, I feel bad for calling them the shouty guy and the kid when these are real people who died. The angry one who kind of takes over command after Musa leaves is Naji, and then Bilal is the kid. He, like he is young. He specifically like begged Musa to come on the trip with him, and he's like gets injured, and he. After realizing what all of this entails is, I've made a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. And it, that's, I think, one of the reasons that his death hits even harder is because, like, he does not want to be part of this very soon into this whole endeavor and is regretting his decision to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's also portrayed as much closer to the age of many of these pirates than some of the other actors are. Mm-hmm. And I think if they... D- leaned more into the kids angle that probably would have both made it a lot harder to watch but also been again more addressing of some of the problems it also would have played up the the dad part that like tom hanks is especially because he's at the beginning of the film he's talking about his son and how he's worried about him like his son is just about to go to college so he's like a senior in high school which means he's about 18 Mm -hmm. and this is in 2009 so this is in the middle of the the Great Recession, and so he's really worried, like... It's not going to be easy for our kids. They'll be going into a different world than the one you and I came into. You know, both our kids are doing great, but it worries me when Danny doesn't take school seriously. He hit missing class. 
that could come out, you know, it, it might hurt him when he's out looking for a job, you know? That economic anxiety for your kid, it would have paired so well with like economic anxiety and the crap situation that the Somalians are, have been dealt. Imagine if they were in a courtroom and he had a whole speech about exactly what you just said. I know. <sighs> Another thing that is just kind of prevalent is uh, the use of a yellow filter, which is a thing people have been talking about more and more is the use of yellow to indicate heat, but also to indicate the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you see this a lot in narrative set in uh, the Middle East, Africa, and Mexico uh, of having this kind of very yellow filter that makes the ne- makes everything look dirty and smoggy. Dirty, smoggy, unpleasant. It makes things look hot, which I mean, it's presumably this was in a like hotter climate, sure, mm-hmm. but it also looks less like the the colors we associate with American suburbia and therefore safety. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying this doesn't get used other places too. Like I've seen it used to indicate like a Southern Gothic setting or the Pacific if you're looking for whales in the wrong places and everything is yellow and green. Yeah. It's weird. It is a tool. It does not have any sort of morality associated with it. But the association that we like, we have continually used this to show Middle Eastern or uh, up and coming economies, mm-hmm. places that are just beginning to urbanize or just getting out of large civil conflicts. And it's kind of just noting that like this filter denotes them as lesser. They mm-hmm. like they are not like us in the United States, mm-hmm. and it is a very shitty trend. Yeah. And because of how prevalent its use is, people have a inaccurate understanding of what other parts of the world are actually like. Because of how much we portray Africa as being people in ragged clothes and uh, tin houses, people are surprised to find out that there are thriving cities in Africa. Yeah, Africa has skyscrapers. <laughs> Lots of skyscrapers. Uh, which, I mean, I'm not saying skyscrapers are inherently good, but whatever. And how we talk about other places, even in the midst of strife and turmoil, is important for... Empathetic responses to those strife and turmoils. Mm-hmm. I feel like I don't have much more to say about Captain Phillips. Uh, no, neither do I. Like, I really appreciate the beginning, the the chase sequence, and the cat and mouse on the ship. But after maybe about fifteen minutes post lifeboat kidnapping, the film just kind of becomes the slog, and there's uh, some really unfortunate problems. Mm-hmm. I think that. If I was physically able to watch this movie, and if we weren't in our current political climate, I might move it ahead of Hotel Transylvania, but I actively want to never watch this movie again for many reasons, so I'm just going to say that Hotel Transylvania gets to move ahead. Yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. Like, It was a really difficult decision because I think, in general, Cabinet Phillips is a much better made film, but the ending of the film made me want to vomit. Yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. So... Well, that that's out of the way now. So yeah, I, I don't. Ahead. I don't have a good like comedy end bit for. I mean, that. we still have the ship ship of thesis award. That's true. We have ship of thesis, and award. this will probably be where we let people know that hey, you can come back now. We're done talking about it. Yeah. Oh, uh, by the way, Hotel Transylvania is moving on. Yeah. Ah, but Ship of Theseus Award. So we have the Legacy, which is the cruise ship from Hotel Transylvania, and then we have the Maris Alabama. Mm-hmm. Um, both of them are. Pretty sure still intact, because I don't think the legacy gets destroyed by the Kraken. No. I mean, they sail away on it, I'm pretty sure, so. Mm-hmm. The Maris Alabama, like, they sustained some minor damage from, like, gunshots and stuff, but that's about it. Yeah. I think I'm going to give it to the legacy, mostly because there's just more ship. <laughs> it is comically large. That's true. It is a remarkably large ship. 
I guess America, Alabama does suffer bits and things being destroyed by the home invasion aspect of the narrative. Yeah. So it's probably slightly less intact. Yeah, they also have to replace that lifeboat. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I think Legacy probably has a few like broken planks and stuff from all the murder attempts. But... And also there's a giant dog running around. Legacy gets to keep sailing. <sighs> well, that's it for this week. And wow, was it a whirlwind of emotions watching these movies. Yeah, and talking about them too. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us on this. We hope this provided uh, at least a little bit of distraction, at least, from everything happening right now. And I hope that whatever coming up next week is maybe a little bit less stressful to talk about. It sure will be. At least a little bit. So we have Jaws. <laughs> Versus Ghost Ship. <laughs> oh, fabulous. Yeah, like, it is a very good palate cleanser, um, which will be nice. We're probably going to have to talk a little bit about, like, pandemic response and Jaws and that stuff. But other than that, giant shark movie. <laughs> giant shark movie. Also, I'm sure Ghost Ship has things that are relevant to the modern world, but I don't know what those things are. Ghost Ship is barely a movie. I think, I don't know if Ghost Ship itself could survive the Ship of Theseus Award. Not just the ship, the actual script itself. Mm-hmm. If you want to catch up with Jaws and the Ghost Ship, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and wherever you catch your pods. Once again, thank you for tuning in. This has been the Gratuitous Bossing Podcast.